Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy. This week, both of our profiles have a drink named after them. Taking a tune out of John Prine's playbook this week. Late, great, much missed. Oh, much missed, John Prine. Yes, I guess they ought to name a drink after you. They did. (laughs) Who do you have this week? Shirley Temple, y'all. Few variations on her cocktail. One trashy divorce. Everyone is trashy in her story, except for Shirley Temple. It happens. This it week happens. you're telling us about uh, Rimbaud's left hand. I got a couple of French poets who were deeply in love and really not good for each other. Terrible so, for Paul, each other. Paul Verlaine and Arthur Rimbaud. It's trashy. It's trashy. Holy cats, is it trashy. Before we start with the episode, let's pull out this magic mirror to say thanks to our new Patreons who joined us this week. Thank you so much for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Allison C, Simone W, Heather G, Casey G, Martin S, Kelly, Nicole F, Marie. Thanks, y'all, for joining us over there. Thanks to our existing patrons. Thanks to you, dear listener, for coming back and joining us another week. And what should we do now, Alicia? We gotta go, go, go. Alicia, you have a story of uh, an exploited child. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. This week, we're going to talk about Shirley Temple, the most popular child movie star of all time. By the time she was 12, she'd made over 40 movies. She entertains and encourages the nation during the Depression. Her box office draw power will save 20th Century Fox Studios from bankruptcy. Hmm. From 1935 to 1939, Shirley Temple was the most popular star in America, with Clark Gable coming in a distant number two. (laughs) Shirley Temple will get more fan mail than Greta Garbo. She will be photographed more times than the president, Franklin Roosevelt. Wow. By 1950, Shirley Temple is out of her first marriage and into her second and also out of the acting game. We've talked about some child stars on Trashy Divorces, Natalie Wood, Elizabeth Taylor, who had very different histories. Shirley Temple is one of the few child stars that goes on to live a healthy and successful life. Not only does Shirley Temple survive and thrive well past her Hollywood years, she goes on to be a diplomat, a breast cancer survivor, and advocate a wife of 55 years, a mother, a grandmother, an author, a recipient of the Kennedy Center's Honors Lifetime Achievement Award, Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award. A lot of accomplishments. Get out your grenadine and ginger ale, folks. (laughs) If you want to add some clear liquor, vodka, or white rum, you'd be making a dirty Shirley. If you added a dark ounce and a half of rum to that, you'd be making a Shirley Temple Black. Makes sense. Okay. For your creative bartending needs? It's time to talk. Shirley Temple. Shirley Jane Temple, born on April 23rd, 1928 in Santa Monica, California, in the cusp of power. Shirley's the third child and only daughter of George and Gertrude Temple. Shirley and her mom, Gertrude, they are a dynamic duo, and they want Shirley to have a career. Shirley, charming, but her mother's persistence will help her child along. In Child Star, which is a 1988 autobiography, Shirley Temple Black writes, she says her mother had made a calculated decision 
to turn her daughter into a professional dancer. They paid 50 cents a week, and Gertrude enrolls three-year-old Shirley in Mrs. Meglin's dance studio. Soon, Shirley is spotted by Charles Lamont. He is a casting director for Educational Pictures. So in 1932, she'll begin her acting career under contract with Educational Pictures. They declare bankruptcy in 1933. Mm. No worries. George Temple, Shirley's dad, is going to buy out her contract for $25. George signs up to be her agent and financial manager. Okay. Okay. Shirley Temple's looks and cheerful demeanor and precociousness, right, are a perfect escape for Americans during Mm -hmm. the Depression. Yeah. Her first roles, though, highly disturbing, are in a series of films called The Baby Burlesques. This this already sounds great. It gets worse. Very popular. These roles are actually really disturbing and very strange in retrospect in the fullness of time. They are hypersexualizing toddlers. I pulled this from the New York Times from her obituary. Baby Burlesques, a series of sexually aggressive one-reel shorts in which children play all the roles. The four- and five-year-old children wore fancy adult costumes that ended at the waist. Below the waist, your eyes are so big, I know. What were we doing, America? Below the waist, they wore diapers with oversized safety pins. And these heavy-handed parodies of well-known films, uh, like The Front Page, the movie The Baby Burlesques made was The Runt Page, Uh, What Price Glory, Baby Burlesques made War Babies, Shirley will imitate Marlena Daytrick, Mae West, uh, wearing an off-the-shoulder blouse and satin garter as the as a hard-boiled French bar girl in War Babies, Dolores Del Rio. I know. Okay. No, in Shirley's role in Politics Goes to Washington, oh, God. Shirley's playing a prostitute sent to entertain a senator who is also being played by a child actor. Wow. So there are like two dozen kids that are in this baby burlesque studio, when they misbehave, they are locked in a windowless sound box with only a block of ice on which to sit. This is completely bizarre. It's terrible. There are a lot of trashy parts to this story. Shirley Temple, not trashy. Okay, okay. <laughs> Everyone else around her, the whole world, trashy. trashy, not uh, her. Okay. No, okay. She will write in her child star book, So as far as I can tell, the black box did no lasting damage to my psyche. Its lesson in life, however, was profound and unforgettable. Time is money. Wasted time means wasted money means trouble. After Baby Burlesques, she follows that up with five two-reel comedies and a year of casting calls and bit part auditions that get her a bunch of small roles. By Thanksgiving 1933, she's growing a little older. She's at the ripe old age of five and a half. In the previous two years, from enrolling in those dancing classes to all the Baby Burlesques, she'd earned a total of $702.50. Gertrude? My kid's getting older, five and a half. Shaves a year off of her age. Shirley doesn't know until her 12th birthday in April 1941 that she is actually 13. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. What a weird childhood. Okay. Baby burlesques. They're weird. I mean, they're entirely inappropriate, hypersexualizing children, but 
In the 1930s, audiences loved it. It was normal and adorable and what's wrong with you? Okay. Her career really does begin in earnest in 1934. She is playing James Dunn's daughter in Stand Up and Cheer. Lots of films here where music will chase away the unhappy reality. Within an hour of completing her song and dance number for this film, Baby Take a Bow, she gets a contract with Fox, 150 bucks a week, and the studio options her for seven more years and will pay Gertrude, her mom, 25 bucks a week to take care of her daughter. Hmm. Okay. Little child allowance there. Shirley's movies quickly transition into movies like Heidi and The Little Princess and Bright Eyes with On the Good Ship Lollipop and Curly Top singing Animal Crackers in My Soup. Like, I loved Shirley Temple movies when I was little. They were great. It's hard for us to be able to compare her fame to anyone today because there's not really a comparable star. She's the nation's sweetheart in a really difficult time. I want to give you some idea of her fame here. Shirley Temple says she will stop believing in Santa Claus when Santa Claus asks her for her autograph when she goes to sit on his lap (laughs) in a department store. Shirley will tell Parade in 1986, people in the Depression wanted something to cheer them up, and they fell in love with the dog, Rin Tin Tin, and a little girl. I mean, it makes sense. Although it's weird, I guess, if you're the little girl. Yeah. Her 1934 film, Bright Eyes, cements her image. Adorable, angelic child. Bright Eyes is notable because it's her first time starring in a leading role. But in 1934, just that year, she will star in nine full-length feature films. The country is so in love with Shirley Temple. Mm -hmm. That year, she is given an honorary Academy Award. Wow. At the age of six. Ask any girl in the country, Uh and they can tell you exactly how many ringlets Shirley Temple has in her hair, and that answer is 56. Like, girls would curl mm-hmm. exactly 56 mm-hmm. ringlets in, like, she's a sensation. Mm-hmm. A style icon at the age of six. She has an, a, a miniature Oscar in grateful recognition of her outstanding contribution to the screen entertainment during the year 1934. She hasn't even hit her stride yet. <laughs> like, she's just starting, and okay. Whew. Shirley's parents certainly encourage her show business career, but they do make some questionable uh, parenting decisions, lying about her age. Shirley maintains that she had no negative side effects from child stardom and that her parents bathed her in love her whole life. Okay. Hold on to that. We'll see how that goes. As a kid, Shirley Temple has a professional and personal reputation that remains intact throughout her life, which is kind of uncommon for a child star. No one who ever worked with Shirley Temple had anything bad to say about her. She's talented. She's got a great attitude. She's very professional. She's universally praised by everyone in the business. Now, let's talk about some other disturbing things back in the fullness of time. Shirley Temple and Bill Bojangles Robinson appear together in several movies beginning in 1935. They are the first interracial couple to dance on screen. I don't know if you knew that. Did not. Shirley will go on Larry King Live, and she she says that she learned later that whenever Bill Bojangles and her hands would touch while dancing, it had to be removed before being shown in the southern United States. (sighs) What are we doing here, America? Okay. 
She adored Billy Robinson. Sure. She calls him Uncle Billy. In the 1980s, Shirley will tell NPR that Robinson taught her to feel the beat rather than count it out. We held hands and I learned to dance from Bill by listening, not looking at the feet. It was kind of a magic between us. Lots of interviews and in her autobiography since then, Shirley Temple Black explains that as a young child, she didn't fully understand racism or the unequal treatment that she and Bill Robinson received. Robinson dies in 1949, but Shirley's memory and love for him are strong well beyond his death. She'll tell NPR about her experience of working with him, saying Bill Robinson treated me as an equal, which was very important to me. He didn't talk down to me like a little girl, and I liked people like that. And Bill Robinson was the best of all. America. Okay. Her peak years are from 1935 to 1939. But as she gets a little older, Hollywood starts to fall out of love with Shirley Temple. At the age of 12, she will start attending regular school. Not school on the Fox lot, but she'll go to Westlake School for Girls beginning in seventh grade. She has no idea how to cope. By this point in her 12-year-old life, she had sat on 200 famous laps, found J. Edgar Hoover's The Most Comfortable. Figure that out. Mm. She shared chewing gum with Amelia Earhart. She talks regularly with Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> the Brown Derby claims it, as well as Chasen's, but both places in Hollywood will claim that they had created the Shirley Temple, a non-alcoholic drink of lemon-lime soda, grenadine, and a maraschino cherry in her honor. She does not care for the drink. She hates it. She thinks it's way too sweet. <laughs> but all her life, her playmates had been very few and very carefully chosen. Mm -hmm. So she gets to Westlake, and what is going on around here? But after a few months of nobody really liking her, she kind of relaxed, and she'll eventually graduate from there, spend five happy years. Fox drops her contract. MGM is going to pick her up eight months later. But now she's an adolescent. This is so gross. When I say everyone else in the story is trashy, here's another example. On Shirley's first visit to MGM, she will write in her autobiography that the producer Arthur Freed unzipped his trousers and exposed himself to her. <sighs> Being innocent of the male anatomy, she responded by giggling. <laughs> and he throws her out of his office. That's wonderful. <laughs> That is a wonderful anecdote. I mean, except it's horrible. But now she's a tween and her star is fading and her trademark golden locks are turning brown and her contract is not renewed. Film historian David Thompson will tell the New York Times that Shirley Temple had become an unremarkable teenager. She doesn't completely stop acting, but in her teen years, she'll only do one or two films a year. Shirley Temple will officially retire from acting in 1950 when she's 22 years old. I mean, you can't be the precocious six-year-old forever. Weird. <laughs> no, I promise she's five and a half. <laughs> Ignore the dentures and the walking cane. <laughs> she's five and a half. Goodness, although her acting career is behind her, she will return to show business from 1958 to 1961 and host a program called Shirley Temple Storybook, where she'll narrate adaptations of classic fairy tales. Okay. Let's get to the trashy divorce, because she's got one of them. At age 15, Shirley Temple will meet handsome, aspiring actor. His name is John Agar Jr. There's a party at David O. Selznick's house. She likes him. He's older. 
He's handsome, he's suave. He'd been raised in a prominent meatpacking family in Chicago. He attended prestigious college preparatory schools. He joins the Navy Air Corps before transferring to the U.S. Army Air Corps, where he becomes a sergeant. Shirley Temple is now a falls-out chain-smoking teenager, and it is her goal to be the first girl at Westlake School for Girls to get engaged. Okay. Okay, that's her goal. She gets a ring. She's 15? Uh, She was 15 when they met. Okay. She will get her engagement ring right before her 17th birthday. Wow. Couple marries. Still precocious. Terrible. September 19th, 1945, they marry at the Wilshire Methodist Church in Los Angeles with 500 guests in attendance. The wedding reception is held at Shirley's parents' home. 700 people come to that party to celebrate young love. 17-year-old bride, super excited to start her new married adult life. And isn't this going to be great? (laughs) High high school was boring. (laughs) David O'Selznick is also excited. He wants to make a star of John Agar. And here the problems begin because John wants to be a star, but John also isn't real cool with being known as Mr. Shirley Temple. And he begins to drink a lot. He will not achieve anything quite like his wife's success. Despite Shirley's best intentions, the marriage will be short and tumultuous. Shirley wants to help her husband and his dreams of fame. Mm -hmm. So to please David O. Selznick, Shirley Temple will star alongside him in two films that John Agar is cast in. He's signed to $150 a week contract. They'll appear in Western Ford Apache, which does okay. And the anti-suffragette-themed adventure in Baltimore. Which bombs. Yeah. Shirley Temple will write in her autobiography. It seems late to be fighting the (laughs) anti-suffragette fight. Right. In the, yeah. Sure, 1947, I think. Okay. How long did this script have dust on it? Right. Uh, Shirley will write in her autobiography that her first marriage was never as ideal as it might have seemed. Her questions first start up on honeymoon night because John will get pretty mad at Shirley and question her because he doubts that he is really her first sexual partner. That seems like a dumb fight to have, but go go ahead. She will also write about his unpredictable temper that would just explode uh, and him being violent with her at times. She will allege that he abuses alcohol, drinking excessively. He was arrested for drinking and driving several times during their brief marriage. Shirley Temple will also claim that he was unfaithful to her. They have one child, a daughter they named Linda Susan in 1948, but the baby cannot save a troubled marriage. Babies often do not save troubled marriages. It's a lot of responsibility. Sure. And they're very young. I mean, Mm -hmm. is he her age? I may have missed that. I want to say, I think he's six or seven years older. Okay. But still pretty young. She's young. I know it was normal at the time to marry quite young, but still. No, it's, it's yeah, not a, it's super not a, young. Not a recipe for success in all cases. Shirley Temple will file for divorce after four years of marriage, citing mental cruelty as the reason. At the end of 1949, divorce is granted. Shirley Temple is given custody of their daughter. The divorce, though, is not a wake-up call for ex-hubby John Agar, who continues to drink and is arrested several more times in the years following the marriage. In 1950, he's fined for reckless driving. 
1951, he's sentenced to five months in jail for drunk driving. In 1953, he's arrested for drunk driving and sentenced to 120 days in prison. He takes a brief hiatus from his legal issues, not being arrested again for drunk driving until 1960. Hmm. Despite his drinking and legal problems, he will continue his acting career. He's in several sci-fi B-movies, some westerns as well. He will remarry again in 1951, John Agar will, to model Loretta Combs. The couple tries to elope, but the official refuses to marry them for a few hours. You need to sit down and wait it off because He's you're drunk. drunk. Mm-hmm. Loretta Combs and John Agar will remain married until her death in 2000. Hmm. Now, after the divorce, trashy husband, trashy dad, he does not have a relationship with the daughter he shared with Shirley Temple. Once Shirley Temple remarries, Linda will take her stepfather's surname and will be known as Linda Black the rest of her life. It's clear that uh, John Agar harbored some hard feelings against Temple. Several years later, he's interviewed for an FBI background check (laughs) when she begins her political career, and he will describe her as emotionally unstable. So they found the one person who does not say nice things about her. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, again, with everyone around Shirley being trashy, let's talk about the enormous amount of money she makes in her films and all of the licensing involved around her image. During the Great Depression, millions are on unemployment. Those lucky enough to have a job are making about a quarter an hour. Shirley Temple is under contract with Fox reportedly somewhere between $1,500 and $2,500 a week. That's real money. Okay. But we haven't had Jackie Coogan yet, have we? Mm-mm. Uh-uh. So there are no laws protecting the earnings of childhood stars until a little bit later. Coogan, yeah. And so by the time Shirley Temple was an adult, very little of her money was left. This is going to make you mad. In her autobiography... Shirley will very graciously say of her parents' mismanagement of her earnings, my father's questionable management of my funds, coupled with both of my parents' spending, enabled me to only enjoy a fraction of the immense fortune I had earned. She goes as a guest on Live with Regis and Kathy Lee, and she'll say she'd earned over $3 million doing films. That is the equivalent of about $34 million. Okay. Not shabby, should be Mm -hmm. plenty. Yep. But when she's 22, she asked her father and his business partner what she had left, and they'll evade all of her questions. (laughs) I bet. When she finally gets an answer, the remaining amount of money from all of her $3 million worth of earnings, (sighs) $44,000. That is such a common story, though. While it is her dad that was her business and financial manager, Shirley Temple Black said she blames his business partner. Her father had left school in the seventh grade and had been manipulated into making poor decisions and gave a lot of her money to the partner. And she said, it doesn't matter at all because I really liked acting. I would have paid the studios to let me do it. Like, That's a she's great, so decidedly yeah. untrashy. That is a great attitude to have about... Because, I mean, whatever, like, that is... You had the best time. This was amazing. That is the situation. Mm -hmm. Whatever the truth was, Shirley never has a strained relationship with her parents. They'll live with her. Mom and dad will live with her and her family in her Northern California home for the last several years of their lives. She'll care for both of her parents in their last years. Shirley's mom, Gertrude, dies in 1977. Her dad, George, dies in 1980. 
So poor Shirley, divorced. Let's go back to 1949. Is she on the outs? Hell no. A failed first marriage does not sour Shirley Temple on the idea of marrying again. Within a year of her divorce, at the age of 21, she's remarried. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. So a few months after her divorce, she goes on vacation in Hawaii, where she will meet Charlie Black. Charlie Black is a Navy intelligence officer during World War II. He receives a Silver Star in Valor for combat. He's the son of wealth and privilege. He's the son of James Black, one of the wealthiest men in California, president and later chairman of Pacific Gas and Electric. James Black was dropped from the San Francisco Social Register for marrying an actress. Okay, so this is Charles Black. He says he's never seen a Shirley Temple movie. Hmm. They meet. They date for 12 days. They get engaged. They're married in 10 months. Hawaii. Hawaii. December 16th, 1950. Shirley marries Charles Black. Successful and happy union. They remain married for 55 years until his death in 2005. Shirley Temple would officially go by Shirley Temple Black the rest of her life. In addition to her daughter, Linda, Temple and Black have two kids together, Charles and Lori. The couple moves to Washington, D.C. Black is recalled back into the Navy during the Korean War. And this really becomes a significant time for Shirley because it sparks her interest in politics, which begins to shape and reveal her later life. She will tell the military publication Stars and Stripes, We lived in Washington, D.C. for two and a half years. During that time, I was privileged to know many of the people connected with the Eisenhower administration. We knew some of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. As happens to anyone living in Washington, you get involved in politics. You want to know more to do more. So she'll begin her political involvement just by reading about current events. She'll begin working with the League of Women Voters and to begin raising money for the Republican Party. By 1967, she has the opportunity to get much more involved. The family is now in Northern California. The current 11th District congressman there died, leaves a seat open. Shirley Temple decides to run as a Republican independent for that seat. I was the last to enter. I was also the only woman. There were 11 men. She comes in second place. But her love of politics, now she's in. Her run gets the attention, though, of a lot of notable people. One of those being Trashy Tricky Dick Nixon. (laughs) Uh, The president. Sorry. Sure. President Nixon. So by running, this paves the way for her first political appointment. In 1969, Nixon appoints Shirley Temple Black to the U.S. delegation for the United Nations General Assembly. In the United Nations, Temple Black is fighting for issues like refugee rights, environmental issues, and concerns for the aging population. She's remarkable. Republicans were different back then, I guess. Yeah, they were. Her political appointments continue in 1974. President Gerald Ford appoints her as ambassador to Ghana. In 1976, she becomes the first chief of protocol of the United States, Hmm. where she is in charge of training new ambassadors and diplomats. Oh, interesting. They all go to Shirley Temple's ambassador diplomat training program. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. During the Carter administration, she will lose her diplomatic position, but she will return to it again during the Reagan and Bush administrations. In 1989, George H.W. Bush appoints her as ambassador to Czechoslovakia. Hmm. 
she's the first woman to hold the title. Although her detractors will claim that she's only appointed to these positions because of her previous fame, she just accepted that as part of her life. About this issue, she'll tell Newsweek, Shirley Temple opened doors for Shirley Temple Black. She'd end up working with the State Department for more than 20 years, widely respected as a diplomat. She takes the job really seriously. She will earn the praise of former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who calls her very intelligent, very tough-minded, very disciplined. I have mixed feelings about praise from Henry Kissinger, but sure. (laughs) I mean, in 1998, Temple Black will be honored at the Kennedy Center Honors for her lifetime achievements. And about her years as a diplomat, she'll say, I like a life in public service. The pay is lousy, but the other rewards, personal rewards, are great. Among many of her other accomplishments, I want to let you know Shirley Temple Black is an early and outspoken advocate for breast cancer awareness. Many people credit Betty Ford with being the first public figure to reveal a diagnosis of breast cancer and have a mastectomy. But before Betty Ford took that brave action, Shirley Temple Black did it in 1972. At age 44, she finds a lump in her breast and waited to get it biopsied because she wasn't informed about the risks. When it was discovered to be malignant, she publicly discussed her mastectomy and the need for early diagnosis. Like She's like, don't just sit in your house worrying about right. it. Go get tested. Mm-hmm. Like it, there's, there's no time to wait. Mm-hmm. She is so passionate about informing women and encouraging them to do breast exams and see their doctors. She holds a press conference from her hospital bed while she's recovering from her mastectomy. Wow. Mm-hmm. No, that was huge at the time. I mean, huge. Yeah. Highly uncommon for public figures mm-hmm. to discuss health. Nonetheless, come into my hospital room. Yeah. yeah. In her announcement to the public, she'll say the only reason I'm telling this is to convince other women to watch for any lump or unusual symptom. There is almost certain cure for this cancer if it is caught early enough. In 1972, when she undergoes her mastectomy, it's routine for women to enter the hospital for a biopsy and awaken to find their breast had been removed or that a hysterectomy had been performed while under anesthetic. It's also thought by doctors and the medical community that women wouldn't be able to handle the news if told prior to the surgery. So they just don't tell them. Um, Shirley Temple Black is one of the first women to say, this is unacceptable. None of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. None of that. No, that's a nightmare. That's... Yeah. What? She'll write for McCall's Magazine and say, it was outrageous that women should not have the right to make their own decisions about treatment, saying the doctor can make the incision, I'll make the decision. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the decade we were born in. I mean, this is... Bonzo, Bonzo, that that was still happening. Uh-huh. Her advocacy, though, does do a great deal to reduce the stigma and embarrassment surrounding the discussion of breast cancer, as well as other women's health issues. Tremendous life. Shirley Temple, after 55 years of marriage, Charles Black will pass away at the couple's California home in 2005 from a bone marrow disorder. 55 years before his death, Charlie Black will woo Shirley Temple with a Tahitian love song. <laughs> The day he died, she sang the same song to him as he lay dying. Oh, it's so sad. He was the love of my life. She'll say in a statement shortly after her husband's death. Once Charles passes away, Temple Black will enjoy time with her family, 
uh, loving her role as a grandmother and great-grandmother, kind of staying out of the public eye. Shirley Temple will die of natural causes at her home February 10th, 2014, at the age of 85 years old, Hmm. surrounded by her family and loved ones. I feel like she deserved a nice long retirement, given that her parents put her to work when she was three and a half. (laughs) Shirley Temple, halos, lollipops. Oh, yeah. All of them. Ringlets, perfectly perfect ringlets for the rest of your life. For sure. Everyone else in this story? Sounds pretty bad. Trashy. I mean, second hubby sounds great. Oh, Charles Black is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But literally everyone else, pretty terrible. Literally everyone else is pretty terrible. <laughs> Alfred Freed. Oh, my God. in your pants. Oh, my God. Baby burlesques. Who thinks this is a good idea for kids? I don't know. We can't show a small white child and an adult black male dancing together on the TV screen. Scandal. Explode. Oh, my God. I don't know. Shirley Temple, decidedly not trashy. Yep. Everyone else besides hubby number two. Pretty damn trashy. All right. That is the good ship lollipop. Sure. On this segment of Trashy Divorces. Sure. And uh, multiple variations of the of the drink named after her. Some, also, I some. was today years old when I learned that grenadine is made from pomegranates. News you can use, friends. Just saying. Trashy Divorces. One-stop shop for... Something. <laughs> Let's take a quick break yep. to hear from our sponsors, and we are coming back with something. See you on the flip, y'all. I love that the ladies at the Oak Tree Group are actually fans of our work. And now they're tying in the Britney Spears breakup episode into this ad. Do tell. You know the quote from her testimony about Britney wanting to own her money? Right. I could see how that would resonate with financial advisors. Taking ownership of one's financial situation is a boss move. Exactly. So if any of our listeners would like a free one-hour consultation with one of the three women at the Oak Tree Group, go to their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for contact information. No attorney or forensic accountant required. That's right. The women of the Oak Tree Group are independent, holistic planners with tons of experience on a wide variety of financial topics. You deserve the freedom to own your money as well. Check out that website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for more details. So, Stacey, you got a different kind of trashy story today? Yes, this is Rimbaud's left hand. Oh, Uh, that's the drink. That's the drink. Named for the cocktail that we're highlighting here. And as you would expect, the two 19th century French poets featured in this story were great lovers of absinthe, but maybe terrible lovers to each other. It's not especially clear to me that poets Paul Verlaine and Arthur Rimbaud would have chosen to marry each other had such a thing been possible, although their affair did lead to Paul's wife Matilda leaving him, or vice versa. I'm not sure. Tell me. Perhaps typifying the tone of their intense, creative, but ultimately destructive romance, the drink is called Rimbaud's Left Hand because that is where Verlaine shot him. Oh, God. At the end of their torrid, like one or two year long love affair. It was. Shoots mm, him in the hand? Yeah, the left one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's dive in. Uh, we will start with Paul, who is about a decade older than both Arthur and Matilda. Paul Verlaine was born into relative prosperity. I don't think his family was well off, but uh, they were they were okay. In the town of Metz in northeastern France, 
I apologize to our French listeners for my inevitable butchery of your fine language. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) his father was a captain in the French army and his mother was quite devoted to young Paul. Throughout his life, she was his main financial support. Okay. (laughs) As a grown man. Okay. When he was about seven, family relocates to Paris. And while Paul dreamed of a career as a writer, his ever-practical father pushed him into the civil service. So as a young adult, he worked in the office of the mayor of Paris, Paul Verlaine, zoning guy, I assume. (laughs) No, you cannot replace those windows with energy-efficient ones. They don't fit the historical... Anyway, by night, as you do, he frequented the cafes and bars of Paris where the writers gathered, talking poetry and nurturing his dream. Sure. He was not a happy young man. And let's be honest, there is a reason for the stereotype of poets as depressed alcoholics, and Paul Verlaine is one of them. (laughs) His first collection, Saturnian Poems, was published in 1866, and it was dedicated to a cousin named Alyssa, who he was in love with. Oh, my. In 1870, he published The Good Song with many lines devoted to his new love, Matilda Mori. Okay. His future wife and his future (laughs) ex-wife. Yay. Matilda was born in 1853, and she was a great match from Paul's perspective because she came from money. Her family owned quite a bit of property, and when her father was young, he hit a crossroads in his life. He had studied the law, but he was also drawn to the idea of a career in the French Navy, and unable to decide, he just didn't. He had plenty of income in the form of rent from the family land, so he just never worked. Oh, well, that's a nice luxury if you can get it. Nice. Matilda's parents socialized with French nobility. They spent the hunting season, their summers, at a duke's chalet. And the rest of the year at the family home in Montmartre. Well, that's nice. Terrible, terrible child. (laughs) No, she she says her life was fantastic except her time with Verlaine. It was Matilda's older brother who introduced his 14-year-old sister to the exciting world of the fashionable artists and writers he was coming to know in Paris as a young man himself. He was, I think, five years older. One was Paul Verlaine, of course, and Matilda's first impression of him was that he was, quote, ugly, badly dressed, and looking poor. (laughs) Walk on, Matilda. (laughs) Just keep on walking. Still, her brother Charles gave her some of Paul's books, and when they met again when she was 16, she was like, hey, I really like your poetry. And suddenly, she would explain later, Paul's entire being changed, quote, as if he were lit by an interior joy, and he was no longer ugly to her. Oh, well, that's nice, I guess. They married in 1870, although not without reservations from her family. So he's like 10 years older than she is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Nine, 10, yeah. Things were pretty good for them for about a year, although there was like a ton of civil unrest in Paris happening at the time. There were wars and... Anyway, uh, there were these weird misadventures where the army kept trying to conscript Paul or would punish him for failing to allow himself to be conscripted. And he kept managing to get himself out of it somehow. Like one time he wrote to his captain and was like, hey, I've moved. So I'm now in a different regiment. And then he never showed up for that regiment. Anyway. A new phone. Who dis? Matilda considered him a bit of a coward, but he stayed mostly sober during this period, which was highly beneficial because Paul, 
is a terrible drunk. And when uh, he did drink, he would start with verbal cruelty. And if that got boring, he would escalate to hitting her. It yikes. was not good. Not good. September 1871, Paul received a letter from a young writer in the town of Charleville, France, which included a few poems and said the letter writer was seeking a mentor in Paris. Oh. The writer was 16-year-old Arthur Rimbaud, also the son of a French army captain, but unfortunately, his father more or less abandoned the family. He was gone often enough and for long enough that Arthur's mother referred to herself as a widow, but apparently also his father was referring to himself as a widower when he was not at home with the family. Oh, Lord. Arthur's mother was strict, Catholic, and extremely conservative. Arthur, unfortunately for everyone, was very rebellious, especially against his mother. And he was intelligent, like he was super bright. And so he made himself absolutely miserable about this like provincial wasteland that he was forced to. He's a teenager. Yeah, no, it's and, yeah. terrible. He craved excitement. He craved stimulation. And twice he ran away to Paris to find it. The first time he was arrested for not having a train ticket. And oh my God. Sent home to mom. <laughs> the second time, this is terrible. Uh, he found himself in the midst of all of that civil unrest. He was at a political protest or at least near enough to a political protest that a bunch of soldiers grabbed him and raped him. <gasps> yeah. So. Oh God. Yeah. Not great. Uh, back in Charleville, he was still seeking a way out. Oh, I'm from my teenage by wasteland. Idiots. <laughs> so he began writing to well-known writers in Paris seeking their help. So it wasn't Verlaine per se. He wrote to everyone. Verlaine was the one who wrote back. Got it. Yeah, he had a list. He was just, oh, Lord. Victor Hugo, save me <laughs> from this provincial teenage wasteland in France. There is a barn I do not like. Okay. <laughs> so eventually he sends his samples to Paul, who wrote back, Come, great and dear soul, we are calling out to you. We are awaiting you. He included some money for Arthur's train ride. So he didn't have to hop the train this time? Mm -hmm. Okay, good, uh, good. Said he could stay with his family, which now included an eight months pregnant Matilda, and the couple was living with Matilda's parents in their big Montmartre. Did Verlaine bother to ask Matilda's parents if this was okay? Not clear. Wow. Okay. Paul was immediately taken with Arthur, who Matilda called the doll-faced destroyer of domestic bliss. Oh my god. What? The doll-faced destroyer of, of domestic, domestic bliss. bliss. That Ar sounds like he'd get introduced at a wrestling tournament. <laughs> the doll-faced destroyer of domestic bliss, Arthur Rimbaud. So Arthur was now 17, barely a year younger than Matilda herself, and his unbridled creativity must have appealed to Paul's desire to break free of his own conventional life. Zoning sucks! No, um... <laughs> others were not as impressed with young Arthur, who Paul's brother called a, quote, vile, vicious, disgusting, smutty little schoolboy. Arthur was not easy to live with. After Matilda and her parents banned him from the family home, Paul tried to find him accommodations with other creative friends. Sure. Arthur became notorious for terrible hygiene and worse behavior. Uh, he would put turds under friends' pillows. Nope. Not cool. Uh, he mixed a drink for a fellow artist that included sulfuric acid. <gasps> 
The fellow artist could not stand him, as you can imagine, but... He sounds like a psychopath. He's not a good guy. Sociopath. Uh, One of them. He's on a path. Let's say that. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, you know, many would admit that he was a talented writer. He experimented with language in exciting ways. But Paul and Arthur really became notorious uh, for the affair they were having uh, and increasingly outrageous behavior. There's a famous painting of a bunch of like the the luminaries of the, the writer scene right? of the day and one of the people that the painter put in the painting was like I will not be in your painting with those pimps Verlaine and Rambaud and so there's actually like there's a flowers <laughs> he was replaced with a, a, a oh, with flowers my. in the painting anyway with Arthur kicked out of Matilda's home Paul was around less and less He dropped by about eight days before Matilda went into labor in October 1871, and they argued about Arthur, which resulted in drunk Paul throwing her to the end of their bed. The day that their son Georges was born, Paul left in the morning and didn't come home until midnight. He was pleased to have a son, he said, and then went to bed in the room next to Matilda's. Days later, Paul got a little mention in the Paris Society pages when he attended the theater, quote, on the arm of Mademoiselle Rambaud. Uh-huh. Yeah. They were not discreet, is what I'm getting at. For about the next six months, Matilda's family tried desperately to redirect Paul back to his family and his career. Get back to the zoning, man. The zoning You're department embarrassing needs us. you. Okay, so they organized a dinner to get him reacquainted with his city hall fellows. With an eye to getting him, I, I assume he'd been fired or quit at this point. So they were trying to, you know, get him back to work. He showed up late. He showed up drunk. And then he spent an awkward evening disparaging to all women, children, marriage, and his own marriage. Cool, cool guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Matilda's family got him a job with a Belgian insurance company, but his aggressive pursuit of alcohol especially absinthe, ensured that the employment only lasted a few days. Uh, Then, like, he went missing. (laughs) And they're calling the insurance firm, calling, whatever. They're checking with the insurance firm, like, is he at work? And we haven't seen him in eight days. He worked two days. Paul who? (laughs) Finally, in the summer of 1872, Matilda and her mother went to Brussels, where Paul had disappeared to, to try to bring him home. He boarded the train back to Paris with them, but at the border to France, you know, they were stopped to check for papers and stuff. He he got off the train to go back to Arthur. And that was the last that Matilda ever saw of You're Paul joking. Berlin. He had some contact with their son later, but I think the, like, he would contact her family about seeing the son. I think they arranged it so that Matilda never had to see him again. That's cold. Well... If you're Paul, and especially if you're Arthur, late liberated from the hinterlands and defining l'enfant terrible for Paris's finest creatives, Matilda's exit is a breath of freedom. From Brussels, yeah. From Brussels, the pair travels to ye old London town. I don't know why. Okay, they were passionate, they were violent, but they were prolific writers together as well. During this period, Arthur started writing Illuminations, a compilation of 40 prose poems. Paul composed Songs Without Words, inspired in part by his experiences with Arthur. 
In London, they were living in near poverty. They were barely getting by. Paul would teach a little bit, and his mother was sending them some money. But it was pretty miserable. It was cold. It was, like, not a great—they were not happy. During a period of separation in their tumultuous affair, Arthur started writing A Season in Hell, which apparently draws much from their relationship. One of his best-known works— When Paul and Arthur would reunite after a breakup, they were constantly testing each other's limits. They drank absinthe, they smoked hash, they may have smoked opium, they fought viciously. Sometimes they would wrap knives in towels and hit each other with them. Why? Don't know. Okay, so uh, Paul, later in police custody, would explain that he and... He and Arthur made love like tigers, and then he showed them his stab wounds to prove it. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. They separated. They reconciled. They separated. They reconciled. Anyway, in a letter to Paul in July 1873, Arthur begged, Come back. Come back, dear friend. Only friend, come back. I promise to be good. They reunited in London. He would just, like, they would pop off to Brussels when they were fighting. Dude, you give love a bad name should be the episode title. This is terrible. So that summer, 1873, the relationship reached a breaking point. After Paul returned from the market to their London apartment, again, they're broke as hell. So he comes back with a little bit of food. Arthur demanded, have you any idea how ridiculous you look with your bottle of oil in one hand and your fish in the other? Paul, enraged, slapped him with the fish (laughs) and left for Brussels, as one does, um, threatening to kill himself, though. Oh, no. Ever dedicated to the drama, Arthur followed him to Brussels. I think he had sent Arthur a letter. Anyway, Paul had acquired a gun with which to kill himself. The reunion in Brussels was not the joyous one either had hoped, and Their misery had been significantly lubricated with alcohol. On the 10th of July, drunk as hell and in a rage, Paul Verlaine drew his pistol and fired two shots at 18-year-old Arthur Rimbaud. Only one hit him, striking Arthur's left wrist, hence the name of the drink, which we will give you the recipe for at the end. Apparently it was a pretty minor wound. Arthur didn't press charges. Paul immediately threw himself onto the bed and begged Arthur to shoot him in the head. (laughs) You just shot my hand. How can I shoot you? (laughs) Use the right. Okay. So in spite of the lack of charges being pressed by Arthur, Paul was arrested and sentenced to two years. And in prison, he was subjected to repeated, like, humiliating physical examinations kind of to punish him for being gay. Oh, that's he not was, good. Yeah, he was also an anarchist politically, which is always... Authorities always love that. They love that. Yeah, that's what I hear. He continued writing, though, and became a bit famous among the prisoners for his poetry. He also wrote to his friend Victor Hugo, author of Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Mis, to see if Hugo could pull any strings on his behalf. And, you know, they were friends. They were corresponding. Right. The warden saw the correspondence, realized like, oh my God, a friend of Victor Hugo's is in my jail. So apparently his treatment improved a bit. Hugo didn't get him out, but but just the... Having greased some palms with connections, mm-hmm. sure. All right. 
Paul got out of prison in 1875. He had had a jailhouse conversion back to his native Catholicism. Arthur was pretty mad about it, but they met in Stuttgart later that year, and he gave Paul a draft of Illuminations, which he had completed. This is the last creative work that Arthur ever undertook. He just stopped writing at that point. Really? Mm -hmm. The reunion, again, went super badly, <laughs> ending with a fist fight where Arthur knocked Paul out in a park and left him on a riverbank. He was discovered by park workers the next morning. And that's, Good thing you have all those zoning laws. <laughs> that's kind of it for them. Uh, Arthur Rimbaud spent the rest of his life traveling, mostly in Africa. Never wrote creatively again. His work did become quite popular while he was off traveling around. He joined like the Dutch army and then deserted in Sumatra or something. Like it's just, he's a weird guy. Isn't it Verlaine and Rimbaud that Johnny Depp and Marilyn Manson? Maybe. I maybe think that's so. the, those are their, yeah. these are our bros. These yeah. are our friendship idols. If I remember from the Marilyn Manson story, that the sounds, Johnny Depp story, I think that's right. That sounds right. A lot of fish slapping with those two. <laughs> with this bottle of oil <laughs> and, and no hands. In 1891, uh, Arthur returned to France to get treatment for a swollen leg. Turned out to be cancer. The leg was amputated, but the cancer had already spread. He died on November 10th, 1891, at just 37 years old. Wow. Live fast, die young. He was a weird guy. Just, just putting that out there. All right. Paul Verlaine wrote and taught for the rest of his life, and he even found love again. That's remarkable after his track Another 17-year-old no. male student. <gasps> yes. Uh, Lucien Letinois. They all just stay the same age. They, yeah. Um, wow. They lived wow. together on a farm in the French countryside until Lucien died suddenly of typhus at the age of 20. Oh, God. Just tragedy, tragedy. This is, tragedy. Where, the, this is where the poetry comes from. Okay. <laughs> it's all the tragedy. <laughs> Paul continued publishing into the 1890s, dying in 1890. I think it was 96. I wrote 1899 here, but, but I think it was 1896. At the age of 51 from... Pneumonia, but also syphilis and ulcers and diabetes, and I'm sure a very, very healthy liver. Oh, God. He died of a bunch of things. That um, is some trash. Matilda, the oh. only hero here. <laughs> she went on to marry again, had two more children. The marriage ended in 1905. She retired to Nice in France, where she wrote a collection of memoirs that would not see publication until 1934. Well, she herself died at the age of 61 in 1914. Wow. If you decide to try your hand at writing poetry, <laughs> abandoning your family, or shooting your lover, you may need some liquid courage. Uh, Rimbaud's left hand is one part Pernod Absinthe, one part Benedictine, one part Aperol Orange Liqueur, one part Lemon Juice, one part Pineapple Juice, an Egg White, and some Rose Water for color that's a complicated drink combine it all in a mixing glass shake first without ice shake with ice and strain into a coupe glass and sidecar garnish with drops of rose water in the center this was apparently created by stephen cole at chicago's the violet hour and for verlaine and rimbaud i award a parisian cafe full of trash cans for these two filled with absinthe 100 <laughs> percent Wow. Yeah. So that's. Thank you. I know we've been trying to figure out where to slide those two in. Um, and there it is. That's the a trashy story. Fish slap heard through the literary world. 
on brand. Well done. It's a good thing he was a bad shot, I guess. <laughs> I've always wanted to know more about that story. I'm grateful I do now. I mean, <laughs> yowza. All right. Well, I think that's it for us. Y'all, thanks for tuning in. You're the very best. I hope you enjoyed this latest installment of Trashy Divorces. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new, brand new Trashy Breakups. Mm -hmm. Coming back on Patreon this week with our Dumpster Dive early and ad-free releases. Oh, we might be going back to grab your hankies this week, doing a little bit of a deep dive. Oh, last week, Stupid Stewarts premiered on Patreon. Mm -hmm. Our nine-year-old superfan, Andrew, made us the first installment of something Remarkable. Incredible. It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Always something trashy happening around this place. Yep. You can find some free Patreon episodes at our short link at bit.ly slash trashcandy. And more mm -hmm. than God, 700 episodes over on patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Holy cats. What a week. What a week. Y'all go make the most of it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You're the very best. Until we talk again, <laughs> keep your hands clean. And the heart's very, very trashy. Cheers, friends. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.